Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you so much, Lord, that you're a good God. You're one that wants to teach us through your word, instruct us in your ways, Lord, to lead us in truth, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to be people that are holy before you, Lord. People that want to walk in righteousness and truth. To remember the love that you showed at the cross and consider the things that Jesus has done for us there, Lord. That we're saved by faith at what he did. And that we consider his sacrifice and desire as believers, Lord, to live for you, Lord. To give up our lives, to deny ourselves and follow you. So I just pray, Lord, that you bless this teaching at this time. May your spirit teach our hearts. Fill me with your spirit so I can share your word. And may you be honoured and praised. Ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, I'm going to be teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through to 14. And the title of today's sermon is the refuge of temptation. And this is what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through to 14. And it says this, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became an, our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters, um, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. <clears throat> now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the age have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such which is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but in the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Um, today, I want to speak to you about the subject of temptation. Because we live in a fallen world with multifaceted trials and temptation that provokes our sinful nature so that we become attracted to sin. I mean, there is a time in life where we forget that we're on a journey from earth to heaven. We forget that we're sojourners just passing through life. Um, we forget that our citizenship is in heaven and that the ultimate reality of the blessings of eternal life is actually in the presence of the Lord. In times like this, when we have forgetfulness, we begin to stray. God becomes second place in our lives. We look for more comfortable and more attractive things for ourselves and our sinful nature. And we begin to think that the grass might be greener on the wrong side of the track. And we don't become thankful and content with the pasture that the Lord has provided for us. In times like these, we get attracted to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life and we turn from God's table to the table of idolatry where we make a, a God that suits our situation or our desire of comfort 
In times like these, we can be tempted to sexual lust, even to live a life that abuses God's grace or even tempts Christ to sin. Or not tempting Christ to sin, but tempting us to live in sin. Then our mouths open up in complaint against God and we can grumble. And instead of being thankful and praising the Lord, we become bitter and we point the finger at the one who loves us, who died for us and rose from the dead. Believing that he's shortchanged us because we don't feel the experience of life and the dream which we had in our heart. You need to remember something. Jesus never said, come follow me and you'll always be comfortable and you'll always be joyful, you'll always be peaceful and everything will be hunky-dory. Jesus never said that. Jesus actually said in John 16.33, he said, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And the questions I want to just get you to think about at the moment are these. So how do we deal with our trials and temptation? What do we need to watch out for in the times of temptation? And where do we find a way of escape from temptation in our life? Because we all suffer in it. It all hits us. We're not immune. It's a part of our life. We have the trials. We have the temptations. They're there. And today's sermon is called The Refuge of Temptation. And the first point I want to tell you, it's called Remember Christ's Provision. Because do you want to know something? Christ doesn't just die for us. He doesn't go up to heaven and just say, good luck, have a good day. It's not like that. He's provided things in our life where we can be fed with the spiritual food and the spiritual drink that sustains us in the times of trial and temptation. The second point is beware of the destruction of sin because sin is there to destroy your life. It's not there for your good. You might want to see that there's some attraction or some enjoyment in the treasure of sin, but it's empty, it's worthless. It's like writing a check and there's no money in the bank account. And what you're going to have is the bank is chasing you for being a fraud type of thing. And that's what happens. Our sin is not there as a blessing, but it's a curse. And the third point is, take the way of escape and temptation. Because in some trials, you may have to live under them, but in temptations of sin, you can actually step out of them. And I want to speak to you about that as well. So let's look at the first point. The first point is, remember Christ's provision. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, and it says this. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, one of the things that we need to remember as believers in the Lord is the provision that Christ has given us. For Christ is our saviour, he's our shepherd, he's our protector and provider. He is there in the times of trouble and temptation and he doesn't leave us and he does not forsake us. And this is the reason why, one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. For we are, are not to be ignorant or unaware of where we've come from and how God has saved us through his son. We are not to be willfully ignorant of the blessings that we have in Christ. We're to listen and learn from the Lord and so that we don't walk in the same errors of those that have walked before us. We're not to deviate into ignorance or apathy or become complacent where we become self-satisfied and trust our own abilities and become unaware of the dangers of sin. Now, I want you to listen to the goodness of God towards Israel because the reason why the Apostle Paul shared the goodness of God towards Israel is to show the similarities that we have with them because we have them. 
I mean, in verse 1, it says, all our fathers were under the cloud. And this is referring to the pillar of cloud that led the children of Israel out of Egypt. It was, in a sense, there like a shelter and a guidance for them. But when we look at ourselves, we don't have a cloud in front of us that leads us. We're not having our eyes opened up to a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We're actually under something else. We're actually under something called the grace of God. In Romans 6.14, it says, For sin shall have no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. For God is the shelter and our guidance by his grace. He's always there for us. In verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says this, that all passed through the sea. For in the times of Moses, God saved Israel out of Egypt. He saved Israel from Pharaoh and the uh, Egyptian army. And he caused a wind to blow on the sea that opened up the sea and made dried land for Israel to go through. But when the Egyptian army went in, it fell upon them. And God actually saved them from Egypt. But with us, we are saved too. We become saved from the penalty of sin. I mean, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And what Jesus done is he went to the cross. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death. Just as the Bible says that God demonstrates his own love towards us. And why that we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we need to remember that we're saved by faith in Christ. It's his sacrifice that brings our salvation. He is our deliverer and he is the one who has saved us. When we look at verse 2, it says this of 1 Corinthians 10. It says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. For the Israelites are seen as having a, a spiritual baptism in the cloud and a baptism which is a baptism of God, as well as a, a baptism of water through the sea. And even though they, we don't always picture that as you read it, Paul mentions it. But with us, we also have a, a spiritual baptism and we also have a water baptism too. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, showing that the baptism of the spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. And in Matthew 28, 19, it says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Because we as Christians have a baptism of water and a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as it says in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 10, it says all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Which is such an interesting thought, because when you read the Old Testament, you don't think of Christ being there with them, but he is. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New One. And if you think about it, we are also partakers of Christ. In John 6.35, Jesus said this, he said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes on me shall never thirst. And if you think about this, Jesus is there as the one who satisfies us spiritually. He satisfies us with his word and through his spirit and with the fellowship that we have with him. He guides us with his love and his care and watches over us. For he's not left a short change because God satisfies all our needs. He doesn't give us all our wants because some of our wants are sinful and wrong. But our needs, he gives them all. I can't think of one need that the Lord has held back from me. And because God has given us all that we need, we know that in him we have life. We have righteousness. We have holiness. We have purity and truth. We're accepted by the blood of Jesus which he shed at the cross, not on the basis of our own work or our own talent, but what he did for us. And just as Christ's death satisfied the wrath of God completely, he is able to satisfy our spirit and our soul with the spiritual food and the spiritual drink that he gives to us. And that's what we need to remember, because this brings us to the next point. 
And the next point is this. Beware of the destruction of sin, which is 1 Corinthians 10, 5 through to 10. And it says this, But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them are. As some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us commit, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained. And were destroyed by the destroyers. Notice that God was not well pleased with some of the Israelites who came out of Egypt. God didn't take pleasure in their character or manner of life. God did not approve of their behaviour and he did not look upon them favourably. For they went astray from the ways of the Lord. The Apostle Paul mentions that they went astray into four things, which is idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting Christ, and complaining against God and God's leaders. And he says in verse 5, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. It means that these sins led to physical death and brought about death, and that death was actually given by God. So God took sin very seriously here. And this is what it says in verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now I want to just stop here for a second and get you to think of this. Do you know that as a Christian you can lust after evil things? Sounds like a full-on thing. You're like, you always think, oh, Christian, always thinks of holiness, always thinks of purity. It says here, it's written so that we don't lust after evil things. And there's a capability in our heart to do that, which is quite sad, isn't it? I don't like it, but you know what? We need to know it. We shouldn't be ignorant of it. I mean, do you know that our heart can desire after things that God actually hates. Not a, good, not a good thought, is it? We don't want to be like that, but our heart can do that. And do you know that God ended the lives of some of the Israelites who practiced the sins, and these are an example for us? You ever thought about that, that you look at all these people that have died in the Old Testament, and they're an example for us not to go after what is evil and what is sinful. I mean, the word for example in the Greek, it's actually tupos. And it's in the, neg- it's in the negative sense, it means this. It means a ruinous event which serves as an admonition or a warning to others. An example of something you should not follow. An example that is like a scar which remains as a wound for a lesson. It's like when you do something stupid, like you go and climb a tree without a rope and you're stuffing around, jumping from tree to tree, you fall out, you smash yourself and you end up with a scar on your arm and the scar's there to remind you, maybe you shouldn't do that again. That's the picture of this word. But in this case, the example is this. It's that you're looking at the wrong path that someone's walked and looked at the things that have happened to that person, you've seen how bad the fall is, and you go, do you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to avoid that, and I'm going to learn from that example not to be like that person. That's what, it's, that's what it's showing here. I mean, if you follow a stupid person, usually you become stupid. My father used to say to me, if you walk with cripples, you will limp. Right, he used to say that to me quite a bit, even though he's not a Christian, he had some good sayings and he had some terrible ones too. Right, but these are the things we got to learn, not just from the good examples in the scripture, but 
also be warned by the bad ones. Now, the lesson that we need to learn as Christians is not to lust after evil things, meaning that we should not desire and long or covet after that which is of the bad nature. We should not have a passion for or set our hearts upon that which is wicked and depraved. We are not to set our minds or our hearts into a mode of sinful thinking because that's something that we're responsible for in the way that we live and act. We're not to cultivate a feeling towards sin because when you desire it in your mind, you actually cultivate those feelings. And we're not to go on to act it out where you do things which are base and wrong and wicked and sinful because sin has consequences and like a cancer, it eats away at your body. It's way at your body, so sin will eat away at you. When we need to be aware of sinful cravings, for sin is there to destroy your life. Now, I want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 11.29. And this actually shows the effects of sin in a Christian's life. And the context is, is actually approaching the communion table, and people were approaching it, in a sinful manner. And this is what it says. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Now what that means is this, right? When it says many are weak, it means that they become weak spiritually. Because when you sin, you can't have a strong spiritual life. It becomes weakened. It says some are sickly. That's physical sickness. Do you know that sometimes God gives sickness to people who want to live in sin. And I'm not saying that everyone that's sick has sinned, but I am saying that sometimes God gives sickness to people because of sin. But the other thing is it says here that there is many that sleep. And this word for sleep, it actually means physical death. And that's what he did. He brought about physical death because of sin. Because sin will weaken people spiritually. And God sometimes gives physical sickness because of sin. And in some cases, he ends the life of a believer, which is quite a sad thing because sin destroys people. It's not there for your good. And this might be sober and sobering and waking you up to some things, but we need to think about these things because sometimes sin can look so pleasurable or so glamorous, like it's got the Hollywood lights around it. You'd watch some of the movies, like... I remember watching um, one of the movies where you got Ocean's Eleven and they make out Feth to be so glamorous where they rob a casino. Or you go and watch other movies where, you know, someone gets shot here and shot there and death looks glamorous. Or they make out sex and drugs and all these other things to be so glamorous. Or getting rich and being greedy to be glamorous. And that's the thing. We shouldn't think that it's a glamorous thing that sin is. It's not. It's a thing which is a lying, destructive cancer in people's lives. And it brings us to the, the four sins which are actually mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 10, 7 through to 10. And here's the first one. The first one is idolatry, which is verse 7. It says, And do not become idolaters as were, as were some of them, as it is written... The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, an idolater is those that worship a false god. And the idea is, is that they make an image or a likeness to serve it, to be in service to. I mean, the, the passage which is quoted here where the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play is Exodus 32. And this is back in the times where God took Israel out of Egypt. They were at Mount Sinai. Moses went up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and they decided to make a golden calf. And I'm just going to read to you verses 1 through to 6 from um, Exodus 32. Exodus 32, 1 through to 6. And this is what it says. For when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together uh, um, to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So they all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And he received, he, he received the gold for their, from their hands and fashioned, with it, uh, and fashioned it with an engraving tools and made a molded calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is the feast of the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day of offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, if you really think about it, you look at verse 4 of Exodus 32, it says this. They gave glory to the calf as the one that brought them out of Egypt. They said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of Egypt. I mean, if you really think about it, you've got God coming down, judges Egypt with ten plagues. Now, I'm not really attracted to making idols, but could you imagine if someone made a golden calf here? And I said, this is Jesus that died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. Wouldn't that be insulting to God? Wouldn't it be insulting to us? That's how bad it is, what they did. It was shocking. I mean, it goes on to say that God desired to destroy Israel and make a nation out of Moses. But if you think about it, Moses was humble. He actually interceded for Israel and they got spared. And there was a judgment that still fell in Exodus 32.28 and it says that 3,000 people died. Now as for me, I mean, I don't struggle with worshipping animals or making images, but there is times in my life where I don't always put God first. Or there is times where I don't always have God as my first love and I, I want to be that way and I have my struggles. But the thing we need to understand here is God doesn't tolerate false religion. He doesn't tolerate false gods. In 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through to 22, it says this. This is what the Apostle Paul said. He said, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Rather that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord's table and the table of demons? Or do you provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? For God actually desires us to be separated to him. To be separated from the false religions of this world, the false gods of this world, to have a pure devotion for him, to love him first and to walk in fellowship with him. So I just want to let you know have God first in your life. Don't let the idolatry of this world or the idolatry which is out there, even the false religions out there, be any of attraction to you. I mean, most of us, when I think of you guys, I don't think of you as going off to the mosque to go and pray to Allah or going off to the Hindu temple to pray to statues. But what I see here is that we do still need to have that singleness of heart for God. But let's go to the next point. The next sin that's mentioned here is called sexual immorality. And this is verse 8. It says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fall. Now this account of sexual immorality is in Numbers 25, verses 1 through to 9. That's uh, Numbers 25, verses 1 through to 9. I'm just going to read that out to you now. Here it is, Numbers 25, verse 1. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people, began, uh, people ate and bowed down to the gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Take all the leaders of the people and hang them and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun. For the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrusted both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died of the plague were 24,000. Now, if you really think about this, right, this is in the times of the wilderness wanderings and numbers. And it says that Israel went off and committed sexual immorality. And in the background, which I haven't mentioned, which of the passages, there's a man named Balaam. He was the soothsayer. And what he did is he went to Balak, and as you read through the scriptures, he went and instructed King Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel, to go and stumble them into sin so that God would destroy them and God would turn against them. And what happened was, is they put that stumbling block before them, and the king actually instructed the, the women of Moab to go and pervert the men of Israel by having sex with them and then taking them off to worship with their God. And the result was 23,000 dying in the plague of the Lord. I mean, if you really think about it, right, God does not tolerate sexual immorality. Now, the word sexual immorality means it means to give oneself to unlawful sexual intercourse or to act the harlot and to indulge in forbidden lust. Now, I know that people struggle with lusts. And I know that even myself, I can look at my own mind. I know that I've looked with lust before. And I know that I've thought the wrong things and those things have entered my head. But this is the thing we need to learn, not to go astray into sexual sin. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 16 through to 18. It says this. It says, Or do you not know that one who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined with the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now, I want to point out something. When you trusted in Jesus, do you know that you became one spirit with the Lord? The Lord come and lived inside you. You have the deepest connection and communion with the Lord. That's what happens there. But when a Christian, this is not referring to an unbeliever, it's referring to a Christian commits sexual immorality, uh, with, whether it's with a man or with a woman, they become one body with that person. And this one body attachment is reserved for marriage. It's something that God gives to the marriage to make it you know, cleave together and it's there so it's a blessing for the marriage. But what happens is, is when you commit sexual sin, you sin against your body. You get that uh, attachment which is within your heart to be connected to something which is a sexual sin. And this is what happens, the thing which God designed for a good purpose becomes an evil purpose where it actually becomes attached to things like sex before marriage. It becomes attached to adultery or homosexuality or even bestiality, which is a terrible thing too. But you start to see these things and there's a oneness connection there. And I know that God can break these, this oneness connection within a person's heart and set them free and so forth. But you need to understand that sexual sin doesn't just destroy your fellowship with God, but it destroys your soul. It destroys the things which are within. And I, I just let you know, if you're tempted in any of these ways, don't go to it. 
Stay away from it. There's another reason for this too, and it's in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians. And this is chapter 6, verses 19 through to 20. And it says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God? And you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the real thing is, as you need to understand, is that we become one in our spirit with the Lord, but our body and our spirit belongs to the Lord now. It's not ours, right? You bought at a price. The only other person you will give your body to is your husband or your wife and become one with them. Or it's the Lord's, that's what it is. So beware of sexual immorality, you know? And if you've fallen from this, I'm not, uh, if you've fallen in this, understand that there is an escape. There is hope. God doesn't just shut the door on you and say, you're done and dusted. It's not like that. Right? Come to Christ, confess your sins, forsake it. Live for the Lord. Because do you know what? Jesus died for all of our sins, even our sexual immorality. He didn't just go, oh, I don't like that sin. I'm not dying for that. He did. And therefore, we have hope. But let's move on to the next sin. And the next sin is tempting Christ. And this is verse 9. It says, let us, let, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Now, tempting Christ means this. It means to provoke Christ to judgment through acting sin, acting out sin. It means an expression of distrust or wickedness. It's like provoking someone. Like, you know when you go and rub something in someone's face to stir them up? Or when you go and live in your sin and you despise God's grace or do those other things, you're tempting Christ. That's what it's showing there. And sometimes we do it by speaking against him with our mouth and saying bad things. But this account is in Numbers 21, 4 through to 8. Numbers 21, 4 through to 8. Oops. I'm just going to flip over to there. Numbers 21, 4 through to 8. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the sea to go around the land of Edom. And the souls of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our souls loathe the worthless, this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and it was as if, the serp um, if a serpent had bitten anyone. When they looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, I want you to realise something quite interesting here. It says, not let, nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted. But you notice that in the passage, they're tempting the Lord God. It's a passage where the Apostle Paul is showing the deity of Christ here. It shows it very clearly. But I want to point out something. It says, the souls of the people became very discouraged on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses, and they said, why have you brought us up out of, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Do you see the questioning of God there? It's calling him to, as an evil motive of te testing Christ or testing God. For there is no food and no water here. That's not true because they had the bread and they called it worthless. So whatever God gave them, they said, that's worthless. Don't want that. And you can see God actually sent fiery serpents to bite them and many of them died. So tempting Christ 
It's like pointing the finger at Christ and accusing him of evil. It's pretty bad, isn't it? It, It's believing the worst about God when he desires your best. It's acting in sinful rebellion against God to provoke him to judgment. There's times where I I don't say, to be honest with you, I've grumbled against God and pointed the finger at him sometimes. It's the wrong thing to do. I've sinned. Right? I know that God forgives me and it's not something I should ever look lightly upon it, but have you ever had a time where you've cracked it at God and got annoyed about life, said bad things to him, questioned his goodness, even shamed his character in those things? I mean, this is something that we shouldn't do. I mean, God does provide forgiveness for Israel. I mean, if you look, I mean, they came to him and they said, we have sinned. And Moses makes a a bronze fiery serpent, puts it on a pole, and everyone that looked at it actually got life. But as we look at us, I mean, in John 3, it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But... Even though we have everlasting life by faith, we need to remember something. In Matthew 4 verse 7, this is what the Lord said. He said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's what it says there. And there's times that we need to remember that God is not our servant. We don't approach him and treat him as if he's our servant. He's come to polish our shoes and look after us in that way. We actually are his servant. We're never to talk to God like he's our slave or approach him with irreverence. Remember, he can judge us for our words and our actions. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. I mean, he's the same yesterday, today and forever. That's what we need to see here. And we need to remember not to be irreverent in our hearts, but to have a heart for the Lord. And this brings us to the fourth sin, complaining against God, and it's also God's leaders. And this is um, verse 10 of Corinthians where it says, Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And complain here, it means to murmur or grumble or to say something against someone. And this is in chapter 16 of Numbers, verse 41 through to 49, so that is Numbers 16, 41 through to 49, which says this. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting and the people and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from among the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they all and they fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, take a censer of fire in in it from the altar and put incense on it and quickly take it to the congregation and make atonement for them. For the wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded, and he ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living so that the plague stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who had died in the Korah incident. So Moses, so Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, for the plague had been stopped. Now I want to point out something here. They, they actually, if you notice something, is they complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Did you notice that the complaint is actually against God's leaders? That's what the complaint is. And when it says you have killed the Lord's people, it's in reference to the rebellion of Korah, which is um, earlier on in the chapter. Because what happened was, as Korah gathered together, had a rebellion, wanted to do his little takeover and wanted to be the one that, 
you know, led Israel and see Moses set aside. But you know what? The Lord had established his followers. And, it, and what happened to Korah is the earth opened up and swallowed him and all those that followed him. And the people came to Moses after this happened and accused Moses and Aaron of this sin. You have killed the Lord's people. Now, it's interesting that the attack is actually on the leaders of Israel. And this actually helps us to understand something, right? And I'm not going to say the earth will swallow you up if you speak against the elders, but have respect for your elders. When you see Calm or Gary or Werner, remember God has put them in that place. It's not something where we put them down. It's something where we give them honour and, and we respect what God's, what God's put there. And the thing is, is, I mean, I want to share some scriptures with you and, and that we shouldn't be harsh towards the elders of the church or our leaders, but we should have a right heart towards them. And I want to read to you Hebrews 13 verse 7 and it says this, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, consider the outcome of their conduct. So I want to encourage you, follow the faith and good conduct of the elders. If you see him doing the wrong thing, don't go do that. The Bible doesn't say go and do the sins that the elders are doing, but it says consider their conduct and the outcome and follow it. So if you see them walking in the right way, doing the good things, you know, an elders deserves double honour, have respect. Because that's where God, God's put them in that place. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says this, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So remember, submit to your leadership. I mean, it's not fine submission. Have respect for your elders because they have been put in a position of leading and watching over your soul and they give account to God for you. And it's not a, like to be honest with you, when I think of leadership or eldership, it's never something that I desire. I see the responsibility of it. I've been to churches where people in the congregation, how they treat leadership, they act terrible towards them. So in conclusion of these things, the, the wise, what is the wisest way to deal with the temptations of idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting Christ and grumbling? Well, that brings us to our next point. Take the way of escape and temptation. It says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon, the ends of, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him think, um, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But in the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now it says now all these things happen to them as an example, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. So the examples of idolatry, sexual immorality, tempting Christ and complaining against leadership, are there so that we don't walk in the footsteps of foolishness. It's better to learn from other people's mistakes than to experience the mistakes yourself. Right. Understand this, that those examples of sin show the worst way to finish your walk with Christ. That's the worst. I can't think of anything worse. Can you imagine that you sinned against the Lord, God ended your life, and that was your walk with the Lord? Not good, is it? Who wants to, who, who wants to have an altar call to do that? No one. If you want to put your head on that altar, I'm not coming with you. Right. So what are the things that we need to do to avoid these things? Well, here's verse 12. It says this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, I wanted to stop there. Now, I want to tell you, don't be proud. 
Don't think that you're super spiritual. Don't think that you have it all together or think that you stand strong. This attitude is of self-sufficiency, self-confidence and self-righteousness. These are not the things of the Lord. To walk around and... Could you imagine Korah when he approached Moses and said, you know, uh, we want to do the leading of the congregation, not just you, and he wanted to take over. Do you think that he was trusting in himself and standing firm and, you know, thinking that he stands well? He wasn't. In Proverbs 16, verse 18, it says this. It said, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So you need to be careful. Don't self-exalt yourself. Don't lift yourself up high, right? Don't look at yourself as big, you know, too big for your boots type thing. And in James 4, 6, it says that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. It even says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. You've got to let God be the one that exalts you. You don't need to exalt yourself. He establishes you. He knows. So reject your pride and seek a humble attitude. Now I'll point out something. A humble person doesn't fall because he has a lowly life. Think about that. You don't fall too far when you're on your knees, do you? especially when you're praying to the Lord. But that's the best spot to be, to be humble. Here's the next thing, verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except such which is common to man. Now, I want to point out something. The word temptation here, it means trial. It can mean test. It can be used in the sense of a you know, temptation as in bad sin, but also being in a trial or a test or living under a trial of life. In the context here, it's better translated temptation because of the sins that are mentioned, right? But I'm just mentioning that, that it's used both ways. So don't think that what John says here, no temptation has overtaken you except such which is common, of man, common to man. Don't think God is singling you out to pick on you with some unique temptation. Don't think like, oh, I've got my temptation which no one else understands. That's stupidity. It says here that our temptations are common to man. It means that there's people out there that suffer the same temptations that you have, the same trials and the same troubles. To think that God has singled you out to pick on you, I mean, do you think your name is Job now? I don't think so. And in 1 Peter 4.12, it says this, Beloved, do not think it is strange concerning the fiery trials which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. So temptation and trials happen to everyone. We suffer in similar ways. So don't fall into the idea of thinking that God's picking on you or that your trial or temptation is not something others don't know about. And here's verse 13, it says this, but God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but in the temptation will make the way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. Now notice something here, it says that God is faithful the first thing you need to do is have a right view of God. If you have a wrong view of God, you're not going to approach your temptations the right way. And if, because God is faithful, you need to understand he's actually faithful to you. That's a good thing. That means that he's on your side. God actually desires your best. God has his faithfulness there and he shows it in two ways. Here's the first one. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That's good to know. That means that every trial that comes into my life, I can bear it with God. And that's good. See, God knows your maturity. He knows what you can handle. So you can endure all that comes into your life through him. I've had times where a trial came into my life, just the thought of something. And that thought really bothered me. And I just said to the Lord, Lord, this is just too much for me. Can you take it away? And he did. Because he understood. 
And I just shared it with him. And I, I was surprised that he took it away, but I just shared that with him. But he could see within me that was just too much at the time. But the other way that God shows his faithfulness is by providing a way of escape. And I looked up the word escape, and when I looked this up, it put a smile on my face. Because the word there, it means this. It means stepping out. Escape. So if you really think about it, God actually provides a way of you to step out of your temptation. Does that sound good? Amen. If you really think about it, it's provided a way where you can step out of it. You don't have to, and this is usually the things which are to revolve around sin. Because sometimes we've got the trials of life, they're always there. But when you have sinful temptations, he's provided a way to step out. I mean, the best way I look at overcoming or dealing with temptation is um, you bring it to Christ, you put him in the middle of it. Do you know that Jesus is bigger than all your trials, your troubles and your temptations? And he's more comforting than him. He can shine brighter than him. There's times where I've had trials and sometimes the trial doesn't go away because it's not a sinful area, the trial. It's a responsibility or something that you have to live in. But I know that if it's a sinful temptation, I can step out of it and run away from it. I can flee. It's really good. I can run away from those things. And the thing that um, you do also when you do have trials, ask a friend to pray for you. Do you know that if you bring your trial into the light, do you know what flees away? It's the darkness. Just bring it into the light. The darkness takes it away. And that's what you need to understand there. Now, some of you need to learn to live under your trial because it's more about responsibility, not the temptation of sin. And these things I want to share with you, God provides the grace, God provides the fellowship until the day that that trial's taken away. He's always faithful. He's always good. You can bear unto it, but you need to do something. You need to do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says. It says this, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Share your worries with him. He understands. He knows. He's not ignorant. So if you have trials and all these troubles, whether it's temptation or living under the responsibility of sin, remember this. Humble yourself to God. Remember that other people have your troubles. Remember that God is faithful to you. He watches over you and provides the way of escape. And with this in mind, always remember 1 Corinthians 10, 14. And it says this, and I don't even need to interpret this. It makes sense. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Realize, don't, don't let anything be before the Lord. Put him first, love him first. So in conclusion of all this, our title is, is The Refuge of Temptation. Remember Christ's provision. The Lord has saved us from the penalty of sin. He calls us from darkness to light. The Lord has given us the spiritual food and the spiritual drink which can satisfy our soul. That's where we can have the rest and the hope. That's where we have all those things. These are the shelter. That's the shelter from sin. The other thing is, is we're not to be ignorant of the sins of the world. It says, so beware of the destruction of sin. Don't follow the examples of foolish people. You know, walk with cripples, you will limp. Bad company can corrupt good character. Beware of idolatry and straying away from intersexual immorality. Don't speak against the Lord or his leadership either because sins lead to destruction. It can destroy things in your life. And the other thing is this, right? Take the way of escape. Don't live under temptation. Choose to step out of it. You don't have to stay in it. You can step out of it. Put Jesus in the middle of your temptation. He's bigger and stronger. And ask a friend to pray for you and bring your temptation into the light because the light drives away the darkness. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you so much, Lord, that you're a good and faithful God. 
You've given us all we need for life and godliness. You're the one that satisfies our heart with the, the good spiritual food and the good spiritual drink. You give us of your spirit. You died for our sins and we thank you for that, Lord. And we look to you. I just pray, Lord, that if anyone's struggling with sin today, Lord, that they can bring that to you. Even find a friend that they trust and ask them to pray for them so they bring it to the light and step out of it and escape, Lord. Because, Lord, I, I just want to see people walking in the freedom that you died for, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that your spirit would go and give these people that struggle life, give them strength, that you'd strengthen them in the inner man, even strengthen me in the inner man. And help us to walk with you in purity and in truth. I pray that you be a comfort to those that live in the trials of responsibility as well, Lord. Because they bear under something. And I ask, Lord, that you could settle their minds and strengthen their hearts. Remind them of your love and even go to them with your spirit and bring encouragement. And I just pray, Lord, that you be there for them. And we just thank you, Lord, that you're so faithful and good. We pray that you bless this day to us and bless our week. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.